All right. Mic check, we good? All right. <laughs> yeah, right. Good morning, North Shore. How are you? Great. Good, good, good. I'm Pastor Scott, and I get the privilege of bringing the message this morning. And we are getting toward the end of our series, our four-part series on the ABCs of financial freedom. Pastor Ken, he brought uh, the first uh, two. A is our attitude. And it really just is, is what do you think about money? Where's your mindset? Do you see God is involved in that? And then B is bondage. And it really talks about the, the weight of debt. And Pastor Ken gave us this acronym. Just, uh, I thought it was funny. Uh, it's debt. Dumb excuse to buy things. Do you remember that? Yeah. <laughs> I cracked up, laughed at that. But really, debt and just this bondage and the weight that it puts on us. I get to bring today's message, and that's the C. And that C is we're going to look at a, a powerful element in our interaction with money that leads us to financial freedom. And that C is choice. So if you'll turn to your Bibles to Malachi 3. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. And we'll make sure you get that. Malachi 3, verse 10. And we're going to be all over Scripture today. So, but this is going to be kind of our centerpiece, our, our, our point that it's going to kind of point back to. And really the whole message actually exists in this Scripture. So it's something that you could even take further study on. So Malachi 3.10, and we look at choices. Let's start with prayer. Father God, we love you, and we trust you. And so as we come this morning, we come and we offer you our ear, our mind, and our heart. Would you have your way with us? Will you speak to us right where we're at in our life, and would you draw us into a more intimate relationship with you? As we look at finances and this idea of choices, give us clarity this morning. Speak to each of us. And we just pray these things in the powerful, powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So as you look at choices, our powerful choice that we have. Point one, there are powerful choice that we have. I first kind of came to a clarity on choices and their power, and I think I came to a clarity because it was such a unique situation that I had a conversation around choices. I was about 25, I think I was, 20, and I was a youth pastor in eastern Washington, Colville, Washington. Saturday night, there was someone from Colville in the service, so I was like, yes, a little town in eastern Washington where I grew up. So I took my youth group to the big city of Seattle to do some street evangelism, okay? And so I was out there, and we all spread out, and I was in the public market, uh, yeah, Pike Street there. And so, and someday I'm going to give you the details of that because there's a lot to be understood and learned from that moment, but that's going to be a great sermon illustration some other time. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, I was sharing my faith in, to these two old guys. If you need an image, you, uh, younger people won't get this, okay? Um, but in the Muppet show, 
There's these two old dudes up, yeah. If you ever been to California Adventures, there's the Muppet uh, ride, and they're up there. That's those guys, okay? They look like those guys. And I shared my faith, and they came back at me strong. And I literally started yelling at me. <clears throat> so they're yelling at me. I didn't know what to do. And actually, a crowd started forming around us, some sort of gospel fight or something. Um, and I just I couldn't get out of it, and they were going hard. And so I just had to walk away. So I was a little bit dejected and sad and walking down the street. And I ran, ran into this guy that was about my age, a little bit older, actually, but maybe five, six years older than me, um, named Alan. And we just started talking and sharing our stories with one another. And what I learned about Alan, who was homeless, he started sharing with me um, about his choices and a series of choices that accumulated to get him to the place he's at. And he says this to me, he says, you know, Scott, uh, this isn't the reason everybody's out here on these streets, but they're the reason I'm here. And what's really challenging for me is some of the choices that he were making were some of the same decisions I had to make. And so I was listening, like, whoa. And he says, you know, life's about choices. He says, when I start making better choices, I believe I'll get off these streets. And I just walked away and said, okay, life is about choices. And I kind of carried that with me ever since that moment. Well, God has the same thing to say to us. In Genesis 2, what God does is he takes Adam and Eve, he creates them, and he sets them in this garden. Man, this is a crazy good garden. It says it's pleasant to the eye. And there's good food. It's like a buffet. The guys are going to identify with this, okay? Because in a buffet, you ladies see the salad and get all excited. Man, we see just the meat and that stuff. It's like, whoa! Um, and they see this just buffet of everything. And God says, you are free to eat of it all and partake of it all. But, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What? He says, you are free to make a choice, but that choice is to step into a boundary. Is that freedom? I say this, yes, if you understand freedom. And the best way I can illustrate this is through sports, because I coached a lot. So my grandson, Brandon, um, he'll pop up here. He's cute like his grandpa, right? <laughs> uh, there he is, Brandon, <clears throat> four years old, and he has started playing soccer. Excuse me. <clears throat> my daughter calls, and we went down to his first game. She says, Dad, went to practice they didn't even get the soccer balls out. I don't know what this game's going to be like. <clears throat> okay. So we show up at this game. <clears throat> they make this little boundary, put actually four goals up, <clears throat> and take these like six or seven kids and throw them the ball out there, <clears throat> and off they go. And man, just chaos erupted. Um, they're literally, um, I mean, the ball was going over three or four different fields, and they're running toward it, and, you know, the field's empty. They're way over there, all of them, right? Um, 
So they're just flying around. All of a sudden they start crying and they're coming back. And you know, you know, my grandson's just crying. Mom, they're taking the ball from me. Um, you know, because he learned you're not supposed to take things from people, right? So he's just crying, he's upset. You see every rule of soccer is being violated here, right? <clears throat> A little more football-like. Um, What happens is, and it's just funny watching the dads who you know, have the sweatpants on, they're, they're excited, their kids are in sports, right? You should see the look on their face, they're like, this is not soccer, this is not soccer. Um, they're so frustrated, and I'm just kind of cracking up watching my daughter, because you know, she, my daughter wants uh, Brandon to behave, uh, Brandon's dad, David, he wants him to get him, you know? And so I'm just cracking up over this thing. Uh, but it's just chaos. They had no idea what they were doing. And it was actually destroying the very thing they were trying to do. In contrast, uh, I've coached a lot in my life, and I was a softball coach up on Orcas Island for nine seasons. And I took a team over that literally was falling apart. They were going to quit, and they brought me in to kind of rescue this softball team. So I came in. One of the things that I instituted Right away, every practice, we had this drill called toes on the line, okay? And when I would yell toes on the line, the girls would come running, and they'd put their toes by the third base foul line. And you, baseball, softball enthusiasts, know why we didn't touch the line, okay? But I won't talk about that now. Toes by the line, the foul line, and I would stand in the coach's box, and every day I'd give them a rule about the game and we'd talk about it, and then I'd quiz them. Then the next practice, with toes on the line, they'd come, stand there, and I'd quiz them about the rule I gave before, one of the rules, and then I'd give them a new rule. And uh, <laughs> no offense, teenage girls, but they would whine. You know a teenage girl can get going? Coach, this is so boring. But ultimately what happens, they started winning. Okay, they started winning, and all of a sudden, Everything changed. Their attitude toward these boundaries, these rules, started changing. I'll say this. Of the nine seasons I've coached, okay, watch out for this. Uh, we went to state eight times. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I had to say that, right? Uh, take that off the video, okay? Um, but the point being here is, is this. They started understanding the game. And what that did is it led to freedom. Freedom to get everything out of that game that they could. And what they started doing when they did that is they started winning. Because most of the teams didn't really get the rules. And we got the nuances of the rules. We understood that those boundaries led to freedom. Right? That's freedom. That's what God sets up. So in our finances, who sets the boundaries so that we can have financial freedom? And you are thinking the Sunday school answer right now, uh, right? The real answer is God. Unfortunately for me and you, many times it's us. But God sets those rules because he wants us to be free, to experience everything that he has for us. It's about choice. What I've done in your um, notes is off to the right side there, now just in case I lose you, what I have a t tendency to do sometimes to get excited, is there are five choices that, that lead to financial freedom. So takeaway. 
And choice number one, understand you have been given the power to choose. It starts there. Understand that you've been given the power to choose. So our second point is our powerful call. Our call is to handle our money God's way. So what is God's way? Let's look at a couple examples. Look down to Malachi 3.10. Bring the full tithe, and tithe means 10%, into the storehouse. And the storehouse is simply where the church kept um, the offerings the tithes that came in. Because remember that most of the tithes in this time were livestock and crops. So they had storehouses to keep them. So bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and therefore, or thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. So that contrasts what the world's way is, right? That's God's way. The world's way says this, get, 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 right? More stuff. If you need any evidence, go just look around with these eyes and look how many storage unit places we have around. Try to rent one. They're expensive and they're kind of hard to get. What's in those things? It's our stuff that won't fit in our garage because it's full, right, of our stuff. We love stuff. We get, get, get. What is God's way? And it's counterintuitive. And that's to give, give, give. Right? And we see that in scriptures. That God wants us to be givers. What the world's value is, I saw this bumper sticker that said, he who dies with the most toys wins. That's what the world's value is, right? God's values, be a giver. And we see that all through scripture. And I call this section from the farm to the heart. So we look through all of scripture and what does it say to us? It says to be a giver. And it starts early. The sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. We often know them for the murder of Cain over Abel, but you know what that tension starts from? Giving, the quality of giving. So we see for the human experience, what God has right out of the gate is for us to be givers. And we march in time and we see Abraham and that mysterious uh, priest shows up, King Melchizedek, And what does Abraham do? He gives him a tenth of everything he has. Time marches on. Jacob has his famous dream of that ladder from heaven. And how does he respond to God? He gives a tenth of everything he has. And then the law is ushered in. The commands over God's people. And what do we see we see instituted something called the tithe, which means 10%. See, and there are three tithes to understand what the people uh, were asked to do. There was the first fruits 
tithes, which is 10% of your first and your best. There's a second tithe called the festival tithe. And that tithe was to um, supply what they needed for the festivals that they had a, a few times a year. And there's a third tithe called the tithe to the poor. Every three years, they'd give 10% of what they had for the poor. On average, that's over 23%. Okay, some years it's 20, some years it's 30%. They're asked to be givers. And that was before they did all the offerings they had. They had a handful of offerings they would give things to the Lord uh, in their interaction with God. You see, what God had them to be under his command, under his law, was to be givers. Jesus enters the scene, and like he always did with everything around the law, he takes it deeper. He confronts the Pharisees. And he says, you hypocrites, you tithe to the nuances, the very little things. You obey that, but the heavier things you neglect, that's the things of the heart. So what he does is he presses it deeper into the heart as he did with everything of the law. He didn't come to abolish the law. He called us higher than the law. And so today as a church, I think 2 Corinthians 9 is what I would call, it's our great teaching. And it really sums this up about being givers. And so we see what the church is called to be. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. What is God's way? God's way is for us to be givers. And what that looks like, it starts with a generous heart. It starts with a generous heart. And then it goes, and I'll use that word, that 10%, uh, as, as a minimum, a 10%. And then bring it consistently. We see in the New Testament that they, the first day of the week, when they gathered to worship, they would bring their tithes and their offerings. So bring it consistently and to the place that you worship. That's how God wants us to do it. He wants us to be givers. And the reason is because it leads to freedom. God wants us to be free in our finances. And he loves us so much that he wants to make sure we don't get off track. So he gives us little sensors to make sure that we stay on track to the freedom that he has for us. And I call this the red light sensor and the green light sensor. The red light sensor is this. It's like that little red warning light in your car dash, like, the oil light comes on. What that sensor is saying is, hey, we got a problem starting here, and you need to deal with it. You need to make an adjustment. 
Because if you don't, it's going to lead to some really big problems. In Haggai chapter 1, God's people are called out of captivity. They're free to go back to the promised land, and they're called to rebuild the temple. So they come in there, and they're rebuilding the temple, and they get kind of interrupted, and they lose their focus from God and his priorities, and their priorities start going toward themselves, and they start living large in these nice houses and all these things, and God brings a red light sensor to them. He says, hey, I'm going to bring a drought on you so that you're going to, I'm going to get your attention to say, hey, this isn't going well. You need to adjust. And it's really cool if you look at verses 11 and 12, if you're looking at Malachi 10 there. Um, uh, what he also does, oh, excuse me, that's coming to the next one. Okay? Um, so in that, uh, he sends that red light sensor to get our attention. And I see this often. You know, I do a lot of counseling with people and stuff. And, and I notice with people, a lot of times, reoccurring financial things. They'll say, okay, here's what God wants. Here's his way. Um, and they don't make that adjustment. And it keeps hitting them, keeps hitting them. And that's what God's saying. Hey, I, I want you to be free. So these little hits are really get your attention to deal with that and head back toward that freedom. He does it because he loves us. Then there's a green light sensor. And that is this. And in my car, I have this little green light that comes on that says eco. I don't know if you have that. And that means economic. It means, hey, you're doing a great job. You're burning uh, the least amount of fuel, speed limit. Everything's good. So what you're doing, keep doing, right? And that's what Malachi 3 there, 10, it says is, hey, you bring the tithe to the storehouse. Here's what happens. I'm going to open the windows of heaven, and I'm going to pour down blessings on you. What he's saying is, I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to say, good job, green light, eco, you're doing it, keep it up. And this is where, if you look at the verses below that, what you see is the way he does that is he brings favor over their things, their crops and things as well. He protects things. It was really cool last night is um, uh, someone came up and I was talking about this. I said, you know, God protects us. Blessing. Sometimes it's not about giving us things. He allows our things to last longer and perform better. And so I had something kind of neat. Somebody came up after service and said, hey, will you come to the parking lot with me? Which is really scary for pastors. I'm going to get the daylight beat out of me because they didn't like what I had to say. And so what do you do? And I'm looking. And it was this lady who said, I think I might be able to take her. I got this. Okay. Um, <laughs> sure. Um, um, and I probably couldn't have taken her. But anyway, so we go to the parking lot. And he says, this is my van. Okay, um, and the transmission went out, and I had it repaired, and everyone told me, don't repair it, go get a new car, because I don't want that, and God told me not to spend money on that. Would you lay hands and pray for this? All right, you better. So I was out there last night, hands on this van, praying for this minivan. God, you protect this thing. Make it last longer. Bless her, because she's faithful to you. That's what God does. And he does that simply because he loves us, wants us to be free, and he uses it to encourage us. That's what he does. So choice number two for us is to choose God's way over the world's way. It's to choose God's way over the world's way. Or you could write... Right above that, 
Choose to give, not get. Choose to give and not get. So if we're going to do it God's way and be givers, what we must understand is the emotions of giving. Point B there are the emotions of God's way. Why is it so hard to give? What are the hurdles? We know it's hard to give just by the evidence we see. We hear what the church is called to do. And national averages tell us this, that 2.5% is the giving of the church. Meaning this, people on average give 2.5% of their income. And we see what the calling was. There's something difficult. There's a problem there. And Pastor Ken shared with us, you know, kind of a tough reality for us, but just family conversation, uh, that North Shore's percentage is 1.7%. The average person gives 1.7% of their income. And we see what the calling is. And it's such an important issue and such a, a problem that, that Jesus talks a lot about it in Scripture. He emphasizes it. Listen to this. Money is such an important topic in the Bible that it is the main subject of nearly half of the parables of Jesus. In addition, one in every seven, that blew my mind, one in every seven verses in the New Testament deals with this topic. The Bible offers 500 verses on prayer, fewer than 500 verses on fate, listen, and more than 2,000 on money. Why does Jesus mention money so much? Why does he mention it so much? It's because of this. Money has our heart. It's captured our hearts. We love money. We love things. Today I was uh, driving around before first service and just praying. So I was driving out here. And, and all of a sudden I saw all these, like tons of these unmarked white Mercedes vans. Okay, he's like, what in the world is this? Felt like some sort of world takeover or something like that. Um, so don't worry, I investigated for us, okay? Um, make sure they were setting up against us. So I followed him over there, and I didn't know this, but there's an Amazon logistics center. <clears throat> and there's these people everywhere, vans everywhere. Why are they there? To make sure we get our stuff by tomorrow, Right? So much stuff, we love it. It's captured our hearts so much that we just pursue it. Worldwide, we have a reputation in America. Here's our label. We are called the most overworked and overstressed nation in the world. We work some of the longest hours in the entire world. And this will make you sad. Um, North Korea is only one of the countries above us, okay? We take less vacation. We have less family time, of course, less leisure time. <clears throat> but here's what's amazing. So all that time away, we still spend more money. Our consumer debt is some of the highest in the entire world. Because it's this idea of get, get, get. <clears throat> and the sad truth is right now that the consumer debt rate is at and starting to exceed the 2008 level. And that was right when the, the, the Great Recession hit us. And it really hit us. I'd say we're back. 
Why is this such a problem? I mean, of pursuing wealth and money. Because money deceives us. That chase, that pursuit, it deceives us. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says this, how meaningless to think that wealth will bring true happiness. Here's the lies or the promises that money gives us. Money promises security. Scriptures say, no, it's fleeting. Wealth will fly away. I think a perfect illustration is uh, Seattle lost one of its great Seattleites in Paul Allen recently, right? One of the richest men in the entire world, okay? And I, I, I know one of his ex-personal assistants and said he's an amazing man, okay? So he's a good dude. Saved the Seahawks, so we love him. <laughs> um, right, now he's got to work on the Sonics, uh, his, his Vulcan does. But in the, uh, what he did, this last week, he died. He died young, 65, not old. Did he have security? Did all that money buy him security? No. How much of that money did he take with him? Right? I'm going to give you the answer. Zero. None. So it's a false security. The next thing money promises is fulfillment. That will be fulfilled. Um, but the truth is, it's a shallow fulfillment. Studies show that what brings us fulfillment is relationships and accomplishments and not money. Interesting thing is, studies also show, I did a lot of reading this week, okay? Um, studies show that as wealth increases, empathy decreases. Empathy is your connection with people. Which studies say that is what brings you fulfillment. So the thing that you're actually chasing actually takes, actually robs you of fulfillment, doesn't give it to you. And ultimately we think that finances and wealth bring us happiness. But here's what it does. It stresses you out. I know some of you here are thinking about $1.6 billion, right? Lottery, it's out there, right? Um, and I don't know if I'm praying that one of you win it and see if you actually tie maybe after this message, right? <laughs> uh, um, but I'm going to guarantee you something. You know, I'm not the smart, smartest guy in the world, but I guarantee if you win that, just you, your life will get a lot more stressful. It's going to be tough on you, right? Because what happens is what wealth does in that pursuit of it, it actually increases our stress, which destroys relationships and our physical health. So that thing that we think brings happiness, it actually destroys it. The love of money is killing us. I read this phrase that says here in the U.S. that we are spending health on wealth. We are spending health on wealth. We're dying chasing this thing called wealth. And I learned, because I, I used to think that money would bring me happiness. Uh, as a young man, a child, I grew up very poor. Okay, we lived in eastern Washington, way up in the mountains. It was really cool. In Colville, I mentioned Colville, and there's people from Colville at Saturday service, so 
Colva, don't get that very often, um, but this little town, and we were way, way out of town, way up on the hills, uh, what you'd call off the grid, meaning it had no running water, no electricity. I had a three-room house with 10 people, okay? Uh, and man, growing up, I'd just think, oh, this is so hard, you know, having to go 50 yards to the outhouse every time, and in the middle of the night, uh, you know, we needed to get water, had to hike down to the well and scoop it up and bring it. It was just hard. I thought if we just had money, everything would be better. And then when I was in ninth grade, my parents just got too tough on them, so they, they moved into town, this little town in this pretty big house, you know, kind of on this little farm thing. And I thought, yes, uh, here we go. Life's going to get better because now we got it. And we're, you know, with the people, spending money. It didn't take very long for me to realize something. That which I was thinking would bring happiness and fulfillment didn't. I actually started longing for the simplicity of that mountain and the character that was built from being up there and working that land because the chase was actually destroying my happiness. So it's a fallacy. Money doesn't bring happiness. And I hear this often. Uh, well, I work so hard for my family. <clears throat> I'm gonna build wealth for my family. That's why I'm doing it. A lot of men and even women doing it for my family. But in psychology today, listen to this. The stereotype of rich kids is that they have few worries, look forward to a bright future, in part leveraged by their family's power and influence, and enjoy the privileged lifestyle that money seems to buy. The reality is that children from more affluent families have elevated substance abuse, including hard drugs. Greater patterns of cheating and missing school Higher amounts of depression, take this in, higher amounts of depression, anxiety, and lower empathy scores when compared to the national rate. <clears throat> Is chasing money better for your family? No, it's not. See, money has a destructive appetite. Ecclesiastes 5.10 also says, for those who love money will never have enough. For those who love money, you'll never have enough. <clears throat> the get, 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 <clears throat> the more, more, more is like a black hole. It just keeps demanding more and more and more, and it's something called greed. And it takes over our lives and enslaves us, and it robs us from the freedom that God has for us. I think it breaks his heart. And listen to this in 1 Timothy 6.10. Oftentimes that love of money, that pursuit of money, not money itself, but the pursuit of it, the love of it, actually robs us and destroys our faith. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money, listen to this, have wandered from their faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. What happens is that, that love of money, that pursuit, what it starts changing is our faith, our hope, our love, our trust, our confidence starts shifting from, from God and his provision to what the world offers and their values. 
And all of a sudden, our faith starts diminishing, 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 diminishing. Or don't have time. Don't have time. Sorry, I'm working. No, 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 no. God, and I think that breaks God's heart. I think that's why he mentions it so much. Okay, that's why the red light's there. Don't go there. It is a dangerous, dangerous journey that will destroy relationships, you and your faith. So what is the healthy emotional relationship with money? And like God, it's just so simple. It's something called contentment. It's being content. Content is just this peace, this calmness. It's a deep abiding satisfaction. The definition of contentment is being satisfied. It's the opposite of greed. It's just simply, I have enough. I have enough, I'm okay. I'm good with you, God. And like Jesus does often, sometimes the best teaching is from children and not some old guy talking to you. Um, So the kids uh, this month, their focus is contentment. So they have a theme each month in our kids' ministry. And this is a bulletin board in the B-Wing, which I've got to give a shout-out to our kids' ministry, Sue Rose, Lila Harris, and their team. They make these amazing bulletin boards. But let's learn from kids. What is contentment? It's deciding to be okay with what you have. I love it. More or less, what is it? The choice is yours. The choice is yours. So we have to do in choice number three, we have to choose contentment over greed. We have to choose contentment over greed. Point C, the economics of God's way. How does God use money? And this is a big topic, so I'm just gonna give you a couple uh, snapshots. The first thing is this, God is a great giver. God loves to give too. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will burn over with new wine. See, sometimes God just splurges on you. Because he says this, is if we are faithful, he will be faithful. And our family ran into this just um, a week and a half ago. My wife came home, and um, she'd had some interactions with some friends, and she says, hey, uh, some of our friends are kind of in a bad way, and they need some help. She says, I think God might be asking us to, to, to be part of that. And so we just sought the Lord together and prayed, and, and the Spirit said yes. And so, you know, above our tithes and offerings, we shot out 200 bucks to some friends, okay? All right, God told us to do it, we'll do it. Um, I get a call the next morning from my father-in-law, okay, who doesn't call very often, so gentlemen, if your father-in-law calls, answer it, okay? (laughs) Yes, sir? (laughs) Um, uh, Did my wife call you? What's going on? Uh, uh, So he calls me and says, hey, you still looking for a boat? Well, the true answer is no, because you don't really have it in the budget for a boat. Um, 
So we just chatted. He goes, I was in Davenport and drove by a farm and there's a boat. Oh, okay, you know, just kind of chatted with him, made small talk, make sure we were good, we're good. Hang up. Okay, good. That, that, I survived that. Um, I love that guy, just so you know. Um, uh, I get a voice message that night. Hey, I bought the boat and I'm bringing it tomorrow. I said, oh, oh no, a free boat. Is it even going to float? I don't have any place to put a boat. What, Lord? Uh, and I guarantee if your father-in-law gives you anything, it's good, right? So, all right, here comes this boat. And he brings this cool little boat. It's 38 years old, okay? Uh, someone gave me a joke. They saw a picture of my boat, and they said, hey, the 70s want their boat back. Yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, so I'll call it. It's a cool, cute little boat. Um, and, uh, and I love this. So our seniors, saints here, good job. We love to buy things from you because you know how to take care of them, okay? So he took care of this thing, right? And it's a nice little boat, runs great, and it's just perfect for boating around, you know? It's not big and fancy, you know? Uh, but it was God's way of green lighting me. Yeah. Say, good job. Great, way to be faithful. Here's a blessing for you. We, and two days later, we ran into that again. Um, our family had a tragedy. Uh, <clears throat> a niece of ours who was to be married this month, um, she was pregnant, and they were going to get married this month, uh, just a, two months along, three months along. Um, and her fiancé died in a car accident. I know, it's just horrible. And so Sandy comes to me, and we're just praying, and said, boy, our family really needs to be together right now. I said, yeah. Um, and so l let's see if we can gather in Thanksgiving. So we started looking at VRBOs, okay? And if you've never done that, just so you know, they're kind of expensive. It's like, especially when you're trying to get 15 people together. So, oh, Lord, what are we going to do? We just really need to be together as a family. How are we going to do this? And um, <clears throat> we get a call from a friend on Orcas Island. You know, I lived there for a while. Says, hey, my five-bedroom beach house, I'm going to be out of the country. Why don't you just have, take that? And, by the way, I'm going to be gone Christmas so you can have it the whole time. And, yeah, I know. And here's what I know. I lived on Orcas Island. Uh, in Thanksgiving, it's about $3,000 a week. It's about $3,500 at Christmas. You know, that little boat um, is about a three or $4,000 boat. You know, so I was just faithful with a couple, couple hundred bucks, and God gave me 10000 right? And that's just what he does. He just um, splurges and says, hey, good job, green light. But here's another economic truth of God's kingdom, is how he typically blesses us is by meeting our need. Listen to the promises. Look at Malachi 3.10 again. So he says, I open the windows of heaven, and I love some translation. It says, uh, the floodgates of heaven just pours it out, man, just poof, the dam is open, here it comes, and I'm going to pour down blessings, right? It doesn't sound awesome, like, bring it now, bring it, Lord. Here's what he says, until what? There is no more need. Until there is no more need. The promises in Philippians 4.19 says, God will supply what? Your every need. Does he say he's going to supply your wants? 
Um, what's just, this is an important thing. Is God is a God that pours out blessings, and he's blessing you with your need. Not necessarily wants. And when we're in tune with him, we can understand what our needs are versus our wants, which the world likes to grab and take off different places. So what are those needs in a, in a basic sense? Okay, what are those needs in a basic sense? Okay, and I, I think there's two things that we need to think about. Okay, the first need he's going to bless you with is he's going to ask you to be part of, the first thing he's going to do is he's going to give you your income to help be part of the church work, that 10%. He's going to use us, me and you, to bring our, our tithes into our place of worship to advance the kingdom from where we're at. So the very first thing he gives me income for is, say, Scott, that's what I'm going to give you to be part of this thing. Whatever that amount is, now you go be part of that. That's the first need. The second need that he meets is he finances missionaries. And who are those missionaries? you. Oftentimes we say this, well, I give God 10% and the other 90% is mine. And the real strong people, well, I give 10%, I save 10% and the 80% is mine. I got some news for you. It's all his. And he has put you here, kept you here for one reason. You are the salt of the earth, light of the world. You are a city on a hill. And he gives you, blesses you with what you need to be that witness. Understand this, that God needs his witnesses, his lights, in every social, economic level there is. I have some friends. Uh, one of my good friends is the ex-CEO of Oakley Company, all the sunglasses. And he is wildly, wildly wealthy. One of the greatest Christian men I know. God has blessed him. He is faithful. It's amazing what he does. I've got some friends that in the world standard have no wealth, but they are rich in the Lord. Okay? They are blessed. They're amazing Christians. Uh, and they're down here, what you'd call the world standards. All over the world, most of the world, in fact lives in this place. God needs his witnesses everywhere, and he's going to speak into you and equip you with the need you have to be the witness to the people he has you witness to, okay? And so I'm not going to sit here and say, boy, I need to be you know, Paul Allen. No, I need to be Scott Harris. I'm the salt of the earth for the sphere of influence he has for me, and so are you. The challenge for us is this is we got to say, Lord, what are my needs? What witness do you want me to be? And we got to get to that place and get satisfied with it. And we got to start getting rid of the wants and, and getting that, that, that voice, that trap that pulls us away. So point number four here is we have to choose our needs over want. The choice we have to make, we have to choose needs over wants. And stay right here. Go to, go to number five. I want to start with there just to set where I'm going with this next thing, okay? Is we need to choose Jesus over everything, okay? And my third point is our powerful challenge for financial freedom. 
And it starts with that. We have to choose Jesus over everything. Where does it all start? Every choice you make, every word you use, every thought you have, every action that you take starts in your heart. That's the starting place. So if we're going to talk about financial freedom, any freedom, anything, anything, it starts with the discussion of our heart. That's why in Matthew 6, Jesus says this. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And look at the analogy, yes. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot have a divided heart and have it lead to freedom. So what he says to us in Matthew 6, 33, is to seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. You know, just... Back in the day, I used to like it was real simple before the internet. I was like, you had your Bible and your translation. Because I'm kind of a translation mud. I have all kinds of translations. So how, as I learned, it was seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all this will be added unto you. Right? Remember that? We need to be kingdom seekers first. It starts there. We cannot have an undivided heart. We have to be one kingdom mindset. Because in that, we'll experience God's way, and we'll experience all of God's promises. So how do we get to this kingdom? How do we get to this kingdom? There's one gate, and John 10 tells us about that gate. And that gate is Jesus Christ. It's the only way into that promises, into that freedom that he provides, is through Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Only through Jesus. He is our gate, because when we enter through Jesus, we get a new heart. We get a new mind. And we get a new power in the Holy Spirit to make these decisions, to live with the power that he has for us. So today, this morning, we are going to take what I call the kingdom challenge, or the Joshua challenge. Uh, we're going to serve you communion and ushers, feel free to start serving, okay? I want you to hold the element. And what the Joshua challenge is, this. Joshua, after conquering the promised land and ready to go take residence, he gives a bit of a speech. He says, hey, folks, people of the world are living all around us, and you're gonna have to make a choice. You're gonna have to make a decision to live their way or live God's way, kingdom living. And he says this famous line, right? And I love it. Joshua 24, 15. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's my prayer and my hope for North Shore Christian Church, that all of us sitting here today will make a choice. First and foremost is to serve the Lord above the world's way. See, communion is a chance for us to recognize and remember the gate. It's that piece of bread that's the body that was given to you 
that became sin, that knew no sin, became your sin, paid the ransom. And it's that cup that represents the new covenant, the blood of Christ that basically signed the contract, the covenant, says they are with me. They're in this kingdom, not that kingdom. What's it gives us all those promises. And it's only through this gate that you hold in your hand that we can go to financial freedom, that we can do it God's way, and all those things. So I'm gonna ask during this song if you would just pray to yourself uh, and just search your heart and say, God, am I doing it your way? Am I doing it your way? Am I trapped by the world in any fashion, not just money, maybe other things? And then when your heart's ready, you take this communion. You take in this gate. Says, thank you, Jesus, for letting me into your kingdom. Paying that price and loving me so much that you offer me freedom through your death and your resurrection. Let me pray for us. Father God, we love you. And we thank you for everything that you do for us. The fact that you give us access into your powerful, fulfilling, satisfying kingdom through the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for each one of us today that we'd enter that gate, that we'd receive by faith the power that Jesus Christ has. And we would not live by the world standards and the rat race and the love of money that it has, but we would be kingdom focused in everything. And we know it starts with receiving you. So Father, today we are gonna receive your body and your blood as a remembrance of the price paid for our freedom. And we thank you and we love you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen.